Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about eerie intruders curious curses, and ruinous resurrections. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of Jay Zarati, Michael Page, Irving Crane, and Craig Groshek to life are Jason Hill, Heather Ordover, and Eric Peabody. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. 
<laughs> Our first tale tonight was written by Jay Zarati and is voiced by Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill podcast. In it, our protagonist receives an unwelcome visitor. With some words of wisdom, he's encouraged to take to heart if he values his life and his soul. Without further ado, I present to you, Are You Unfulfilled? Are you unfulfilled? I want to help you. Specifically, you. Yes, you. The one reading this, going, Is he really talking to me? Yes, I'm really talking to you. I know you. I know your type. Bored. Frustrated with life. Seeking that thrill that'll make you feel again. So deprived of anything that even the idea of being uncomfortably terrified has become alluring to you. I know you. I can see you through your open blinds. <laughs> Bet that got you, didn't it? Hmm. No one ever closes their blinds. That's what makes it easy for me to get you. I'm about to give you a gift, and not just any gift, but the gift of fulfillment. Now I know what you're thinking, <laughs> God, that sounds lame, but hear me out, it's worth it, I promise. As long as you are reasonably intelligent and keen to details, getting this gift is going to be a breeze. Oh, what's that? Why should you care? Well, I guess you have a point. Maybe I'm just blowing smoke up my own ass and I should leave you to sit in that dirty room, staring at your greasy screen alone, like you do every night. Maybe tomorrow. Or the day after that. Or the day after that. Or the day after that. You'll finally scratch that itch and feel happy with yourself again. Who knows? Maybe the meaning of self-fulfillment really is wasting your time, picking your nose and smelling your own farts, rousing the internet every goddamn day, racking up that data plane bill. You did turn off cellular data when you got home, right? Oops. <laughs> now, for those of you who are seeking a little more to life than a hunchback and a greasy reflection staring back at you every time something loads, you've stumbled upon the right place. Well, not stumbled. I chose you. All this is going to take is a keen attention to detail and a little bit of finesse. First off, clean yourself up. Look, I know this is your house and I shouldn't give you shit about what you're wearing, but come on. How many days have you been wearing that shirt? I can smell it through here. Put something clean on. Shower if you can. You won't stand a chance if they can smell you. Oh, right. I should mention that. The gift comes with a few... How do you say? 
obstacles. I can't technically give you something without getting something back. That's not how demons work. Yes, I am a demon. Yes, I would like your soul, but no. It's not my top priority. Besides, I've seen your search history, buddy. I already know I'm getting that, no matter what. <laughs> Just kidding. For now, I'm waiting for you to cave in and watch those special videos. No. What I want is different. I want influence. You see, the soul game works like a business. We need ads and models and product samples and yada yada yada. Ugh. You don't have to worry about the logistics. I've chosen you for a reason. You're smart. Even if you don't know it. Don't get touchy-feely on me. I only say that because devil knows you need every confidence boost your sad little psyche can get. But back to the matter at hand. You've hopefully showered now. Nice and clean. You got underneath your nails, right? Good. Step two. Bait the house. I said they can smell you. And smell you they can. Sprinkle those dirty clothes in some of the hard-to-reach areas. The dogs can't climb, so the higher the better. Not too high now. You don't want the bugs getting a hold of it and finding out you've lied. They hate liars. And they despise cheaters. Stay away from closed doors, too. I don't know exactly where those hands come from or what they attach to. I do know, however, that I've never seen the same pair twice. Step 3. Arm yourself. Knives don't work and guns give you away. Well, crosses are okay, but I save those for a last-ditch effort. Mirrors. Mirrors save lives. You want something big. Not too big that it becomes a burden, but big enough so you can hide behind. People lose their shit looking at those things. They claw their eyes out and eat them. They rip apart their skin and beat their skulls in against desks so they can destroy what's left of their minds. One prospect used a skull shard as a spoon, but ended up paralyzing himself on accident before he could get the job adequately done. Just stood there, staring and crying. That's why it's important you don't look. Instead, use their weapons against them. If you hear something, close your eyes and use this rule of thumb. If it slithers, close your mouth and plug your nose. If it claws, get high and don't make noise. If it's quiet and it's cold, raise the mirror. Hold it close. Now that you're armed, prepped, and dangerous, you're ready for the last step. Start the game. To start it, wait until exactly 3 a.m. The witching hour. That's the good news. You only have to last one hour. One. Once the clock has reached 3 a.m., stand in the middle of your living room and turn off all the lights. Pitch black. Outside lights count, too. Any light visible beneath the doorframe is bad news for you. Sit down in the center. Close your eyes. And wait. 
for the door to open. It doesn't matter which one. Just remember that one is now closed. Doors and hands. Remember. Once it shuts, open your eyes and move. Remember what I told you. If you make it through the hour, all you need to do to end the game is say my name. I'll be right there to whisper it in your ear. Once you hear it, you only need to whisper too. I can't run the risk of telling you beforehand and letting you fuck things up before they even begin. If you think that what you'll go through is horrible, imagine what the devil will do to me. It's just a game of stay away. A bit of hide and seek, a bit of tag, a bit of something else. All you need to do is stay away, pay attention to your surroundings, and remember everything I've told you. That being said, welcome to the game. What's that? Oh, you didn't know? Oh, man, I feel silly. <laughs> Forgot to mention that, didn't I? Oops. The game starts when you learn how to play. Do you see the time? I would start moving if I were you. Just think about how fulfilled you'll feel after all this is done. You'll definitely have scratched that itch. Remember to pay attention to detail. Pitch black. And close those blinds. No one ever remembers to close their blinds. That's what makes it so easy for me to get you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Are You Unfulfilled? As written by Jay Zorati and voiced by Jason Hill. If you enjoyed Jason's performance, check out more of his narrative nightmares on his program, Horror Hill. Available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever your favorite programs can be found. With two thrilling seasons to sink your teeth into. And if you drop by and dig what he does, please take a moment to leave him a five-star review and a comment. And let him know you heard about him here on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. It would mean a lot to us. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you as written by author Michael Page and performed by Heather Ordover. In it, 
a young woman is haunted by both the living and the dead. Will she find a way to reconcile her fears and lay her demons to rest? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you The Heart and the Cabinet. When a heart fell out of the medicine cabinet, Carrie Pickett screamed. Not two seconds ago, she'd wandered in, relieved herself, and opened the swing door for her sleeping pills. Out it rolled, rebounding off the sink and against the floor with a sickening plop. The sudden movement startled her, and the realization of what it was caused her to reel back in ghastly shock. A human heart. A human heart on her floor. One of her hands clasped over her mouth, and the other searched blindly for the doorknob behind her. Twisting it open, she lunged out of the room as though the heart were about to give chase. A moment or two later, she gingerly peeked back into the bathroom. The heart was still on the floor, its wet creases reflecting tiny pins of light, its red shape flexed, and a second after, loosened. Once. Twice. Several times. A low, muffled sound similar to a dove's coo slipped out of Carrie's throat. It was still beating, pumping nothing but air out of its dark chambers. Mechanically, she rushed to the kitchen and clutched a handful of napkins. For whatever reason, she felt better holding them. When she returned, the heart was gone. Arteries and all, it left no blemish on the floor or cloudy splatter on the sink where it had ricocheted off. Fight and relief flushed through her system. She shuddered, thankful that the thing was gone, but horridly perplexed as to what had just transpired. Did she imagine it? Or had it actually happened? For the next few hours, ranging minute to minute, She'd poke her head through the door, checking if the heart had returned. When enough bravery accumulated, she opened the cabinet and sifted through it. No weird marks, no heart-sized trap doors, nothing deranged at all. Just your imagination, the soft voice of coping whispered. You need more sleep. No more scary movies for you at night. The sleeping pills? Check the expiration date on your sleeping pills. Reassuring as these thoughts were, she could not get the image of a heart on her floor out of her mind. So vivid and wet and horrifically corporeal. A visual fallacy was one thing, but she'd heard it smack wetly against the floor, watched it beat with some ungodly pulse. No, she said out loud from the hallway, no different from her ten-year-old self toward anything she disagreed with. No, no, no. Hearts do not fall out of cabinets. Sane people do not see these things. Just the thought, the idea of such a horrible thing happening in her home offended her entirely. But despite the flux and flow of panicked thoughts, she was still able to sleep, thanks to the pill she took. 
Having convinced herself the heart was some strange hallucination, she got up bright and early and tidied up the house. That was the only therapy she needed in times of stress. A clean, quaint home. Not only that, book club was tonight. Carrie loved the meetings and found them to be the only thing she looked forward to throughout the week. It reminded her of how far she'd come in her lovely life, in a lovely neighborhood, with lovely friends. I belong here, she told herself often. I deserve this. Skipping the bathroom entirely, she decided to clean the sewing room where her mother's ashes sat on the oak sewing table. The urn was navy blue with a white flower grafted into its design. Next to it, a picture of Marianne Pickett smiled, hair a perfect Farrah flip. She was once an avid dressmaker before the Alzheimer's set in. The words sat in a row of ugly letters within Carrie's thoughts and still made her shudder. Draped lazily over a chair was her mother's favorite cottony white shawl. It had rarely not been hanging over her mother's thin shoulders. She'd found it in a rummage sale and instantly fell in love. They were practically giving it away, her mom had declared. Carrie used to despise the shawl and groan when it accompanied them on every one of their outings. The unsettling pattern was stitched so it resembled hollow-eyed faces with grimacing open mouths, silently wailing. It was neither cute nor lovely. The Alzheimer's had struck so fast it was frightening. The first Carrie noticed was the rapid shift in her mother's personality. Memory was the first to go, followed by a sheer cliff of paranoia. She was convinced that someone was sneaking into her house and stealing things or moving them to different rooms. Then she believed someone or something was in her closet, scratching at the door. It's coming back, she'd shriek. Back again, I don't want it. I don't want it anymore. No matter where they moved her, the episodes only grew worse until a heart attack took her in the night. Carrie swallowed bitterly at the thought of that very same condition someday entering her own world. Her mind being stretched so thin, it would inevitably start to tear. No, thoughts like that were ugly and didn't belong inside of her. However, witnessing a heart fall out of her medicine cabinet did make her anxious. As the sun set smoothly behind the hills, Carrie waited for the set of knocks at her door. First would come Joyce, cradling her toy poodle. Then Marie, with her strong perfume and gold bracelets. And then Elizabeth, with bottles of wine. The bi-weekly book club started at eight and often went until late as the ladies laughed, sipped their wine, and discussed the latest novel. As wonderful as it was to read, the real enjoyment came from pairing the perfect wine with the perfect book. Light and zesty wines for dramas, dark, juicy red wines for allure. Book club was certainly not just about the books. But tonight was all wrong, dreadfully wrong. When Elizabeth's knock came, there were two voices on the other side of the door. And when Carrie Pickett opened it, she found that a blight had returned to her life, awakening like a dormant cancer. I hope you don't mind an extra, 
Elizabeth beamed. But she said you both knew each other. Blair Wilcox. The witch. The usurper. The spreader of rumors and bullshit. Yes, they knew each other. For years, from grade school to college, Blair had made it her life's work to make Carrie miserable. Careful, she's got crabs, she'd whisper to the boys Carrie liked. Whores don't go to heaven, notes read that hung in her locker, always in the same handwriting. And any girl Carrie attempted to befriend would soon be converted otherwise after Blair was through with them. Now Blair had moved back. She and Elizabeth were old classmates who finally reconnected. Elizabeth told her about this fantastic book club with her closest friends. Yes, of course she could join. Still, throughout the evening, Carrie laughed, sampled her glass, and played social fiddle. If there was one thing she'd become good at over the years, it was how to play pretend. At the end of the evening, as Carrie took the glasses back to the kitchen, Blair stepped up. Let me help. She smiled, already grabbing her own and following Carrie to the kitchen. The moment they were both alone, Blair let out an uncomfortable sigh. Hey, I know how heinous I was to you back then, and frankly, there's nothing I can do to take any of it back. She paused and looked away remorsefully. I want to apologize. You didn't deserve any of it, and I wouldn't blame you if you hated me for the rest of your life. No problem, Carrie said with a stitched up smile. It's all water under the bridge. Honest. Blair's face blossomed into a smile, and as everyone said their goodbyes, she pulled Carrie into a hug and whispered, I like your friends. Finally alone, Carrie stood swirling her wine glass. Yes, all water under the bridge, where your hair disappears beneath the waves and the piranhas gnaw at your lips. What was the last thing she threw in, like some nefarious warning? I like your friends. Carrie thought about it more, and, irritated, she washed the thought down with a gulp of wine. That night, the quiet acoustics of the hallway were disturbed by her pacing feet. She took a deep breath and stared reluctantly at the bathroom door, thinking herself ridiculous for even feeding such a fear. But there was fear, nonetheless. Stop it. There's nothing to be afraid of, she snapped at herself, reaching for the door. Nothing out of the ordinary, just the same old regular bathroom, pristine and white. When she looked toward the cabinet, the awful memory filled her brain. I repeat, her thoughts nipped. Stop imagining things. Sticking to it, she moved to the sink and opened the cabinet. The hand holding the swing door reeled back. Her jaw dropped open and hung there while her eyes glazed over, void of all things sane. A heart, still pulsing, was hanging in a flask-shaped sack anchored to the back of the cabinet. Red, webby veins spread like tendrils over the shelves, stretching and twining over Carrie's toothpaste, her razor, her mouthwash, her medicines. Their branch-like tips were still growing and an inch their way down toward the sink like vines on an ancient temple. 
Carrie wanted to scream, and perhaps in some part of her she did. But instead, she ran to her room, grabbed her cell phone, and leapt back to the bathroom. By the time she set the camera and clicked on the button, the cabinet was empty once again. No heart to be found or photographed. She thought to call the police, but wondered how the conversation would go. Yes, operator. A beating human heart was in my bathroom. Sure, I'll hold. Then next, the neighbors would see the police cars in front of her house. Then the gossip would start, with Blair leading the charge, she thought. What did I do to deserve this? She asked gloomily as she slid to the floor and rubbed her temples. Why am I being tormented? What does it want? Whose heart is it? Everything was off-center and her reality was growing more slanted by the minute. Soon enough, it would reach a tipping point and there it would be, a descent into madness. As she took a few breaths to calm herself, a petulant voice crept from inside the cabinet. As if by itself, Carrie's body left the floor and ended up in the garage where she grabbed a box of nails and a hammer. Slamming the cabinet closed, she nailed each and every side shut. No, she punctuated every smack of the hammer. No, 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 no. Once finished, she stepped back to marvel at her work, realizing only afterward that she probably should have taken her things out first. Shawl, she thought. That was the word she heard a few moments ago. It was clear as day. Carrie marched into the sewing room and grabbed the thing. This ugly thing she'd allowed into her home had no doubt played a part. It did not belong. But just as she went to toss it, a realization struck her. The texture of the shawl was nice. Strange, she thought, that a shawl so ugly could feel so pleasant, comforting even. Perhaps that's what her mother had seen in it. Sighing, Carrie tossed the shawl into a trunk in the bedroom, out of sight, out of mind. For the next ten days, Carrie was blessed with silence. Every so often, she'd lean an ear against the cabinet, listening for any muffled thump or wet crawling sounds. When she heard nothing, she'd smile and muttered softly, I won. Her life had returned to its usual charm. When book club rolled back around, she figured Blair would be joining them again. Why wouldn't she? Her friends were making themselves at home, pouring wine, when Carrie stepped out to get the novel where she had left it laying. Hearing their whispers, she first thought they had started without her. But that wasn't it. They were leaning in close, whispering, and who was leading the quiet chatter but Blair, and her voice spreading like poisonous vapor, whispering things to her friends on her couch in her home. As Carrie entered, the mutters dissipated. What were you all talking about? She asked as she took a seat. Just some book ideas, 
Marie giggled before turning back to the novel, leaving Carrie in a wake of doubt. It had gotten especially late by the time her friends left, and this time Carrie was thankful to see them go. Just as she poured out the last glass of wine, there was a knock at the door. It was Blair Wilcox again. Forget something? Carrie asked, completing the question in her mind. Something else you'd like to sink your fingers into? No, no, Blair said, waving a dismissive hand. I was just wondering if you'd maybe like to grab coffee sometime and catch up one-on-one. -on -one. Carrie fought the look of revulsion in her eye. That sounds great, but I have such a busy week ahead, it's hard to tell when I'll have a free moment. Blair frowned. Well, how about sometime next week? Trying to think of an excuse, Carrie heard a muffled thump somewhere in the house. She turned her head to listen for it again, then whipped back to her guest. Uh, next week? Uh, no, uh, that isn't looking good either. Anyway, I should head to bed now. Another muffled sound, this time much louder. A look of concern crossed Blair's face. Is everything all right? Peachy Keen, goodbye. Carrie all but slammed the door in Blair's face and made her way toward the hall, where another heavy thump resonated. An anxious bubble welled up in her chest. Go outside, the voice begged. Go outside and bring her upstairs with you. Prove that you aren't crazy. But what if there's nothing there? Carrie wondered out loud. That's just what she needed to give this bitch even more leverage to work with. Carrie's really lost her mind. She made me check for monsters in her bathroom. Instead, she reached into her pocket for her phone and made her way to the bathroom. She hit record as she slowly opened the door. The cabinet hung there menacingly, and just as her sock brushed the tile, a loud thump battered the inside of it. She drew back sharply, not daring to take another step. Two of the nails she'd secured looked like they were rattling out of place. Leave me alone, Carrie yelled, and for a good two minutes, she thought it had worked. Then suddenly the entire cabinet sagged as the fasteners pulled away from the wall stud. Its integrity was yielding as the woodwork stressed and splintered. The door ripped open and broke right off its hinges. Wood scattered in fractured chunks. Nails clattered to the tiles. The shelves and all their contents barreled out in an avalanche. But Carrie noticed none of that. She was staring at the large shape that was unfurling from the cabinet. A woman flopping onto the bathroom floor, or rather, the upper half of a woman. Her skin was a muted septic color so thin that the grooves of her spine protruded. Black mottled hair hung wet over her shoulders and her milky eyes. The bottom half of her jaw was gone, leaving a blue shriveled tongue to swing and wriggle. And although her mouth hung loosely open, that same petulant voice oozed out. Where's my The arms, thinned down to their joints, dragged the torso closer. The fingers, grotesquely long, scraped against the porcelain. No legs trailed behind it, 
but ragged, stringy endings and lying exposed in the cavity of her ribcage was the pulsing heart. Alzheimer's take me now, Carrie uttered, stumbling toward the hallway. The phone slipped from her grasp. She slammed the door closed. This isn't real. It's crazy. This can't be real. The hands scratched at the door. An ugly finger slipped out and felt its way around the carpet. Not real, Carrie screamed, bashing at it with her heel. The finger snapped to the side as its bone jutted hideously outward. Where's my shawl? The voice repeated, so close now she could feel the nip of cold breath at her ankles. Screaming as she ran, Carrie careened down the hallway, grabbing her keys and racing to the car. Even as she pressed on the gas and raced down the street, she could not stop screaming. At first light, the glow of the rising sun crept sluggishly over the house. Birds had started to chirp, and the grass was heavy with morning dew. Carrie Pickett slowly pushed the door to the house open and uneasily slipped inside. She was holding a knife, the price tag still on it. The house was quiet, like nothing had happened. When she was certain the coast was clear, Carrie darted into her room, ripped the shawl from the trunk, and tossed it into the gas fireplace. It took mere seconds before Carrie was watching the flames creep over the embroidered, wailing faces. Not my shawl! Not my beautiful shawl! Her mother's voice was shrill, but the thing did not burn. It defied all logic, all physical rationality. Carrie watched in a blend of amazement and horror as the flame seemed to waft away from its woven texture. You are cursed, she muttered to it as she twisted the valves and waited for the flames to die. You cursed my mother. Now you've cursed me. She left the shawl and went back upstairs where the bathroom door was still shut. Hoping she'd find the bathroom spotless like before, she hesitantly opened it. Everything was still a mess, with bits of marred cabinet and contents spread all over the place. Reminders that what she had experienced really had happened. That it was all real. That it existed. Using a broom, Carrie retrieved her phone to watch the cabinet door rip out of its socket. She heard her own yelling, but there was no woman in the frame, no voice calling out to her. What had been demanding the shawl? A ghost? A demon? She wanted to wallow to bury herself in a new crooked reality. What if she threw it out completely? What if that only makes it worse? Then pass on the curse, a voice whispered in her thoughts. Sell it in a pawn shop. Have a rummage sale. Get rid of it. Horrible as the gesture sounded, she'd be lying to herself if she said it didn't provide a bit of comfort. It's a way out, however wicked. But could she really live with herself? After some thought, Carrie made up her mind. 
It was noon when she pulled up to the White House. The yard was neat and pleasantly green, with lurid flowers that bunched up at the curb. Box in hand, Carrie made her way to the door. It only took a minute for Blair Wilcox to open up, surprised at the sight of Carrie. Oh, hey there. Hello, Carrie smiled. Elizabeth gave me your address. I hope you don't mind the intrusion. Not at all. How can I help you? Well, I'm moving, and I thought it awfully rude to fall off the map after we had just reconnected. Her gaze fell to the box. Your apology meant the world, and I, I thought what better way to thank you than giving you something in return. Oh, you didn't have to do anything like that, Blair shrugged dismissively. Please, Carrie said, holding out the box. I really want you to have this. Blair took the box and nodded. Well, thank you. I appreciate the gesture. To which Carrie smiled and said sweetly, So do I. I hope you enjoyed The Heart and the Cabinet, as written by Michael Page and performed by Heather Ordover. Up next, we've got a third and final dose of darkness for you. A Chilling Tales for Dark Nights exclusive original story written by the writing team of our director Craig Groshek and Irving Crane. And it's performed by our 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition runner-up, Eric Peabody. In it, a middle-aged woman in the throes of a midlife crisis disregards the concerns of her family and closest friend in order to chase life's thrills while she still can. Will her exploits allow her to regain her fleeting youth or bring her even closer to the grave? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you, Rest in Peace, Ellen. Paige watched with wide eyes as her friend was ushered into a cage with iron bars, jagged with rust. An iron arm swung the cage over the edge of the filthy fishing boat. Paige pressed her hands together, her eyes welling with panic. No, please, she pleaded. She doesn't have that much money. Let's just forget about all this, please. The one burly man next to the crank that raised and lowered the cage shot her a look that clearly indicated how much he didn't care about what Paige thought of the whole affair. Please, just let her out. Just let us go. Lady, the man snarled, you're not the one that financed this little expedition, so you're not the one we're taking orders from. Just as Paige started up with more muling, the man hit a release next to the crank, and the cage plummeted into the waves with a splash, her friend Ellen grasping the bars from the inside. Paige yelped. The chain reached its end and, becoming taut, throbbing like a heartbeat. Paige took a few urgent steps toward the crank operator, but two other brutish men with short necks and broad shoulders blocked her. You don't listen too good, they grunted. Paige imagined her friend screaming, struggling, panicking. Bubbles were rising from where the cage hung in the depths, 
After a dreadfully long time, it was pulled up out of the water. Ellen's wetsuit-clad body was revealed. She slid her mask and her breathing apparatus off her face and pumped her fists in the air with a loud whoop. Paige shaped a steeple over her nose with her fingers as she shook her head. Paige! Paige, I got pictures! Ellen yelled as she held up a large waterproof camera. Paige wouldn't even look at her. So how many do you think you saw? asked the crank operator with folded arms. Excitement radiated from Ellen's face. Oh god, I don't know. Probably six or more. The man nodded and shifted his fat cigar to the other side of his face. So that means it was a successful dive. That plus the camera rental is going to put you at about four grand. Ellen stepped out of the cage and handed the waterproof camera off to one of the men. We'll get these uploaded and give you a code so you can access them. Ellen shot the men two thumbs up. She turned to Paige and gave her the same gesture. Paige just glared. If it's all the same to you ladies, we're heading back to shore, said the crank operator. Four thousand dollars, Ellen. Four freaking thousand dollars! I know, isn't it a steal? Ellen exclaimed. You can't afford that much. You could barely afford the money that got you out here. Well, yeah, but you're not exactly made of money either, and yet here you are. The boat they had just been on motored off into the fog. That wasn't even an actual diving boat. Pagey, page, page. Anything else would have been much more expensive. Last I checked, a fishing boat floats just as good as any other. And that diving cage. I swear to God, some of those bars looked completely rotten. May as well have shielded yourself from those sharks with a garbage can lid. That only adds to the thrill of it. Ellen slung her bulky diving gear over one shoulder. Paige didn't know how that slender little woman had so much strength. Any average day, Ellen Morgan looked like a mosquito with sky-blue eyes and very short blonde hair. Ellen wasted no time in adding the pictures from her dive to her social media. Horrible, fish-eye perspective shots of shark noses, shark eyes, and shark teeth, like the animals had been looking into a funhouse mirror. Paige's inbox filled up with private messages from Ellen's friends and family. None of them had anything good to say about her practically tongue-kissing the wildlife. What were the bars of that cage made from? Waffle cone? You're keeping an eye on her, right? I thought you said you were going to talk some sense into her. That was something Paige indeed said she could and would do when she thought that this was just a phase. A bump on the road for a woman another year farther from her youth. But the closer that 63rd birthday loomed, the more restless Ellen became. It was harmless, at first. There was a big amusement park nearby, clearly a knockoff of Disneyland, and a successful one, with roller coasters that never sat still too long. Ellen began riding them. No problem, right? Well, she began riding them often, visiting the park just for them. 
She would bring friends and ride the coasters long after her friends felt like their stomachs were hanging out their noses. They waited to see Ellen look exhausted and worn out, but no. Something inside her had awoken to the taste of adrenaline, and it was getting a bigger appetite with each ride. Then, at one of their sushi dates, Ellen asked if the establishment had pufferfish. Yes, that pufferfish. Paige was apoplectic. You can't behave like this. You're a 62-year-old woman. The more Paige tried to put on the brakes, the more Ellen floored the gas. She glimpsed a date circled in Ellen's daily planner that said, Rock Climbing, Red Cliff State Park. Then there was a video on Facebook of someone recording Ellen diving off a waterfall into a spring. Paige dialed up her Mama Hen act and demanded that Ellen never do anything like that again. Ellen promised. Then, a month later, a video surfaced of Ellen bungee jumping over a gorge. I promised I'd never do anything like that again. It's different. There's no water. Ellen laughed in the face of her best friend, who was red as a tomato. Paige insisted on coming along on the shark dive outing just so she could cause as much trouble as possible. Well, she failed. Ellen had become a rolling stone straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. Unstoppable and picking up speed. Several months passed without Ellen doing anything else that looked like suicide wrapped in Christmas lights. Paige hoped that it was a sign that perhaps she was going to finally come to terms with the fact that there was nothing wrong with turning 63, and that it would be worth it to see it. Paige had seen her father go into the ground when he was only 47. She had also buried a child at only 8. Losing one more loved one, she thought, would push her over the edge. She had gotten good at finding excuses to pay her best friend a visit and check on her. This time, she was bringing over a new casserole. Ellen's humble, light gray bungalow gave no indication of the recently restless and wild old woman that bounced around within. The large orange cat on the porch sniffed at the familiar sight of Paige. His name was Baker, named for Ellen's favorite doctor in the Doctor Who series, Tom Baker one of the things that Ellen and Paige both held in common. She smiled at the cat as she waited for the door to open. Are you keeping that wild owner of yours from any more crazy adventures? The answer came as soon as the door opened. Ellen was wearing outdoor hiking gear and a backpack that was complicated enough to have been military-issued. Then there was the wide explorer hat on her head. Ellen... Paige! Oh, how are you? What you got there? It's a new casserole I'm trying to get the hang of. Thought I'd test it on you. Now, what you got there? Paige frowned at the hat. Y'all can call me Dora, Ellen said with a quick bow and trotted back inside. Paige mouthed a silent, ah, fuck, before crossing the threshold. She saw the brochure before Ellen could hide it. It was for a mountain climbing expedition in the most treacherous part of the Rockies, and the pamphlet wasn't shy. 
Reaper's Leap, Danger, Dismemberment, and Death, if you dare. Paige set the casserole down to arrest the brochure with both hands like it were a live fish that would wriggle away. Ellen Morgan, she spat. Dora Morgan, Ellen replied. What in Mother Mary's blazing asshole after 20 tacos is this shit? It's a brochure. You're going mountain climbing? That's what mountains are for, Paige. You're almost 63. Ellen twirled around the room like a child, mumbling in a deep, derpy voice. Owen, you're almost 63, dear, dear, dear. Paige wasn't amused. You're gonna give me a heart attack. Then you should be like me and live a little before that ticker flickers out. Ellen, you keep saying my name like it's some magic word. Haven't you noticed that it doesn't help anything? You were saying my name over and over after my roller coaster binge. You were saying my name over and over when you found out about the rock climbing and the bungee jumping. The nice men hosting the cage dive with the sharks said that you wouldn't stop saying my name while I was underwater. I don't know. Did you ever think that babbling my name like a parrot is only making things worse? Paige's eyelids fluttered as she held up her hands and her mouth hung open. Then she pulled her long auburn hair back and held it tight. You almost said my name again, didn't you? Ellen put one long finger to her friend's lips before she could answer. You can say my name until you poop your pants, but I'm going to do what I want, like always. And this time, it just so happens to involve mountains. And suicide? No, just mountains. They argued for a good hour, something that resulted in Paige storming out of the house without the casserole, as if she were giving her best friend the luxury of a last meal, though the expedition wasn't due for another week. The day arrived and Ellen patted Baker on the head and whispered him a farewell. Naturally, she had talked Paige into looking after him. The double doors of a silver bus parted, and Ellen trotted through as though they were the gates to heaven. She looked at the brochure again. The front was a picture of the path they would be hiking. It looked like the road to hell. Jagged rocks like misshapen teeth awaited anyone with unsure footing. Thorny trees that didn't offer much shade. Well, don't you look excited? said a low voice from the seat behind her. It was a young and athletic woman with a shaved head and eyes like black coffee. Her whole bearing suggested sports and adrenaline. I am excited, oh gosh! Her name was Sarah. They chatted most of the ride, and Ellen loved every minute of it. The busload of mountaineers unpacked at one of those single-level hotels that were nothing but thin walls and moth-eaten fabric. Dinner and sleep were rushed through like an obstacle course at basic training, and the early sunlight of the next day found everyone headed up the trail pictured on the brochure, and it looked no less infernal in person. We're on an express elevator to hell, Ellen shouted. Going down! said Sarah from a few paces ahead of her. 
The two women exchanged looks, verifying that they were indeed quoting the same movie, and they giggled like fifth graders. They ascended rapidly through the toothy landscape. Mountain towns soon looked like clusters of pebbles. Ellen couldn't get her fill of pictures, ending up at the rear of the group. One minute, the noon sun was bearing down on them. The next minute, there was the cool scent of rain and thunderheads closing in. They looked like they were great chunks of the jagged, saw-toothed mountains that had levitated into the sky where they churned with electricity. Ellen pumped her fists and whooped at the sight, but she was the only one that thought so well of the brewing storm. Stay close to the rest of us, Sarah warned. No sooner had she spoken than the rain slammed into them like a tidal wave. Their guide, the loud and jolly Roger, was swept off his feet and rolled down the face of the mountain like a meatball in a red shirt. Lightning struck so close that the thunder felt like it was going to rattle their teeth loose. They all found themselves breathing through their mouths so they wouldn't drown. Sarah was sure that a couple of others had been washed or blown off the trail, but she couldn't see who. It felt like hours before she could see more than a few inches in front of her. She renewed her grip on Ellen's hand as they all hunkered down in place to try and ride out the onslaught. Little by little, the rain let up. Little by little, they could see again. Sarah gripped the hand in hers tighter and looked over to ask Ellen if she was okay. She discovered that it wasn't Ellen's hand she was holding. She looked around. Ellen wasn't with them. They detoured down to one of the villages, a trip that took several hours too many. A search and rescue team was formed and began their grueling rounds. They found Roger, dashed open like a watermelon. They found the broken remains of the scrawny college girl, flecks of her own glasses in her mouth. But they never found Ellen. She was someplace dark and cool, where the storm reached her only as a steady drip, drip, drip in the puddle she lay in. Memories replayed themselves vividly, and she thought she was reliving certain moments over and over. The rain had sent her tumbling down the mountain. The ground had disappeared. Daylight was replaced by pure black. Something huge, presumably the ground, gave her a full-body pimp slap. The world was very still and quiet, except for the dripping. This, along with the smell of earth, told her she had found a cavern. She had a feeling that she was the only one who was going to know about that cavern for a very, very long time. Something rippled through her chest. A laugh. A sob. Maybe both. She heard a far-off sound. A shuffling. 
She supposed that rats or cave crabs or something were on their way to strip the meat from her body. She perked up a bit when she thought she heard voices mixed in. There was no mistaking it. There were voices. The rescue team hadn't given up on her. It surely had been because of Sarah. She wasn't going to let them rest until they found her. She tried to call out, but her diaphragm didn't dare allow it, not with broken ribs against her lungs like the switchblades of a gang of robbers. It didn't matter. They were getting closer. Strange. She couldn't see any flashlights. Perhaps they were using night vision. She held her head up in expectation. The voices were all around her. Something about the chatter didn't feel right, and the sound began to leech the hope out of her heart. And then, all was silent. Ellen held her breath. No pain could prevent it from coming out as a scream when vice-like hands gripped her and dragged her away. Days later, through a mile of solid rock above where Ellen had landed, a rescuer in a neon orange vest was speaking into a walkie. He was saying that the body of the sixty-some blonde wasn't turning up. The radio crackled back that the search was officially being called off. The rescuer tightened his lips and nodded. Over, he replied. Daryl Waltman hated delivering bad news. He had done his share of it over the course of his career, but he never got completely numb to it. He always got a little twinge, a flutter in his chest when he knew he had to make a phone call and tell someone that somebody wasn't coming home. He was in one of the few villages along the mountains that could get a decent cell signal. He had to stand outside the general store that was placed at the edge of town next to the hand-painted sign that said, Welcome to West Church, population 165. Daryl tried the old blonde's publicly listed landline first, chancing that she had some family living with her. Someone answered on the second ring. Hello, this is Paige. Hi, Paige. This is Daryl Waltman. I'm a detective. Listen, are you family with Ellen Morgan? There's been an accident. He laid the whole thing on her, and she went to pieces over the phone. Something Daryl experienced many times, but again, it never got to be an easy thing. The call ended and Daryl was free of the grieving woman who would cry her eyes out. He looked out over the land that sloped down into the base of the mountain and out into forever, paved with pines and dirt and endless wildflowers. His stout stomach growled at him. He eyed the one luxury that Westchurch boasted, the aging donut and coffee shop. The owners, a middle-aged couple, had found a not-so-gently-used neon sign on one of their vacations. It was set out in front of the dumpster of another donut shop in Detroit. Hey, 
Maybe it still worked, and if it did, nobody would miss it. The sign did work, but it had spasms, mostly in the donut that formed the O in coffee. Mabel and Dave ran the generator for a few extra minutes every day so that the cells would have enough juice to power the sign in the evening and in the morning. Not that they really had anyone to show off for in a town like that, but, you know, it was nice to have. The sign wasn't lit. Daryl squinted at his watch. Maybe they decided to switch it off early today. A dull bell sounded when Daryl pushed the door open. The place looked vacant, but he could smell the coffee and the cinnamon, so he knew there were people here. He sat on a bar stool and looked at the old black-and-white television set that prattled away on the coffee-stained counter. There was a breaking news segment. The residents of the small mountain hamlet of Thistle Creek woke up to find that twelve people had all died mysteriously. Two of them were visiting from out of town. Daryl cocked his head as the screen switched to one of the locals, an elderly man that must not have been used to the sight of news equipment. He kept flinching at the microphone being shoved in his face. They's just gone. Couldn't have been more than a day. Nobody's suspicious of any strangers, cause all the strangers were part of the ones that died. My brother found one body, and then I found one. My sister. Then everyone's minds are, you know, heightened. We all did a town-wide check, and the bodies kept piling up. Looked like they all died at the same time, but we'll never know. Mabel? Anyone? Daryl called out. A mental shadow passed over his face. Hey, Dave? It's Daryl. I need to talk to one of y'all. He made his way to the door that led behind the counter. He could feel his heartbeat picking up. How are we doing today, folks? Lots of good coffee and donuts to fatten up the law enforcement? The kitchen was empty. Hints of smoke came from one of the ovens. Daryl opened the door to find some donuts turned to charcoal. Daryl never poked around back here before, but he was pretty sure that Mabel would never let that happen to the donuts. Dave? Mabel? Hello? He checked the bathroom, which was really just a closet with a toilet installed. The door was locked. Daryl pounded on it. Hello in there? There was an answer. A single, dull thump. Daryl pounded again, but the door didn't unlock and the thump didn't come a second time. He tore the door off of its rotten hinges and the cold, dead body of Dave face-planted onto the floor in front of Daryl's feet. His pants were around his ankles and a folded piece of toilet paper was in his limp fingers. Paige sat in her silver BMW in the parking lot of the church, watching people go in. A breeze caressed her through the open windows. It was the only sound between the dull chiming of bells. She didn't want to go in. It would be admitting that Ellen was gone, admitting that she didn't stop her, 
couldn't stop her, couldn't talk some sense into her. She had tried and tried and tried, talking until she was out of breath and words alike, and it hadn't been enough. She switched on the radio. Piling up around several towns nestled in the most inaccessible corners of the Rockies. All of them have no trace of foul play or poisoning, yet evidence suggests that they all died at the same time. Tension is mounting as the people in these isolated settlements no longer feel safe in these places where the world's problems usually seem so far away. She switched it off. When it was clear that there was nobody else to go ahead of her, Paige went in. The sounds of bawling and electric organ blended together. She could feel herself being speared by the eyes of Ellen's family. She knew they blamed her. Her closest friend and confidant her whole adult life. The one person that could have reintroduced Ellen to rational thinking. Yeah, the friend that failed. Paige wanted to weep for herself as much as for Ellen. She knew it was selfish, but how else could it be spelled out? What other conclusion would the family have reached? First her father and her son, and now her best friend. The crying around her teased her own tears to the surface, and she didn't want to break down in front of all the accusing stares. She sprang to her feet and walked toward the front double doors of the funeral home. Her tears clouded her vision so much that she was blinded long enough to collide with someone. Her nose was assaulted with a stomach-shredding stench. Mildew. Sweat. Human waste. She staggered back and wiped the tears from her eyes. She didn't remember the ear-splitting scream that people told her she made before she passed out. All she remembered was looking into the filthy face and cataract-clouded eyes of Ellen. So Ellen showed up to her own funeral. Could have been worse. She could have come to see Paige after the whole thing was over, forcing her to have to tell her family that her best friend was back from the dead, and they'd write it off as a fish story. And it would be like that scene from They Live where Roddy Piper just couldn't get anyone to see for themselves that he was telling the truth. Ellen had finally made something easier for Paige. They all sat in the ER with noises and faces much like the ones at the funeral. Family got called to come back and see Ellen first. Paige's heart was in her mouth as she waited her turn. Paige Fisher, the nurse called next. Paige was startled and jumped to her feet. You can come back now. She was trying not to run. Ellen's family briskly walked past her in the narrow hall. She was led into a room, and there she was. All cleaned up, but still changed. She turned her head towards Paige, revealing those eyes like milky marbles. 
The next revelation was Ellen's right arm. The absence of it. Paige clamped her hands to her face, unable to take her eyes off of her ruined friend. Her cataract eyes tracked her as she crossed the room to sit on a stool. Ellen, it's me, she croaked, barely speaking above a whisper. She didn't answer. Paige waved her hand. Ellen waved back. She can see you, the nurse said. She just can't remember you. What? Amnesia. Significant memory loss and possible psychosis from head injury. But I have perfect sight, Mommy, Ellen interjected and added nothing else. Her arm was lost in the mountains, apparently severed and cauterized in the wild. Oh my god, Paige repeated over and over to herself. Are you ready for the harvest? Ellen said, looking at Paige. What? Ellen didn't explain. She keeps speaking about some sort of harvesting. One of the reasons we want to monitor her for signs of psychosis. With the exception of her arm, the only thing that really seems to be broken is her mind. How soon can she go home? Once we know she can walk and function, she can go home in a few weeks. Possibly sooner if there's someone that can live with her to help her get used to living without an arm and monitor her state of mind. And that was all Paige needed to hear. She wasn't leaving her friend's side again. Ever. She visited daily, even it was just for a short while before visiting hours were over. She told Ellen all about their lives, especially their friendship, how it started in grade school and lasted all through college and beyond. Ellen seemed to listen. She never said much, nor did she let on that she remembered any of the experiences Paige related. When she did speak, it was only about the coming harvest. How she was going to dance among the pale broken stalks as the storehouses are filled to the brim. Strange shit like that. Paige figured out before long that questions about the harvest were the only questions Ellen would respond to. So, she would ask questions, even if the answers never made any sense. She figured any workout for her synapses was better than no workout at all. Weeks later, Ellen had some questions of her own. The doctors saw this as progress, since up to that point all her cognition was reactive. She didn't have any questions for her family, only for Paige. This made her feel redeemed on some level. Tell me more about when we were young, she would say. Vague, much? The questions never got more specific. So she'd get stories that ran the spectrum from their childhood up to their 20s and 30s. She started asking more about their college days. Paige didn't remember much of those days, courtesy of many mind-altering substances. 
She was embarrassed about what she could recall and often lied to Ellen. But she somehow knew when she was lying and called her out on it. Those college days. Man. Paige referred to them as their death days. All they wore was black. They'd get hammered, high, or both, and visit art galleries in their altered states. It was Minneapolis. Art was everywhere, so a dilapidated apartment full of paintings curated by fellow college students counted as an art gallery. Somewhere between looking at art and having just one more, gorgeous boys would get involved, but nobody remembered those details. Just that they had to introduce themselves when they woke up. They both tried painting. Paige tried writing. Under the influence, of course. Everything she made was death-centric. Dying and darkness and despair. It was nectar to her drug-addled soul. Ellen would ask questions about that creative phase. Paige was surprised to find that it made her uncomfortable to regurgitate those old, trite verses. When you're in college and all lit up and you have your whole life ahead of you, you have the luxury of rolling death around in your mouth like forbidden candy, just to see how it tastes. After burying her father and her son, and especially after almost burying Ellen, Paige no longer saw death as tragically gorgeous and poetic. No longer considered it to be the source of everything beautiful, but rather the annihilation of it. She would try to change the subject, but then Ellen would regress back to being unresponsive. Paige stood with Ellen in front of Ellen's house. She was finally allowed to come home, provided Paige would look after her. At the sound of the door unlocking and opening, Baker ran in to greet them, but as soon as he saw Ellen, he arched his back and hissed. Ellen stared dumbly at the animal. I guess Baker doesn't recognize you, Paige said, her eyebrows furrowed. She thought cats remembered their humans for life, even after they change hands. Baker, Ellen mused. You named him after your favorite doctor. I don't remember a Dr. Baker. The cat fled at the sound of his name. The two women went to the backyard where a small patio was fronted by flower beds. Ellen gazed down at the blossoms that had gone a bit wild in her absence. Paige hoped that seeing the colorful plants would reach her in some way, but she didn't seem to register anything. You pulled weeds out here every evening. Sometimes I was afraid you'd start pulling up your plants if you couldn't find any weeds. Still, no reaction. Days turned to weeks as Paige guided Ellen through the motions of daily living. She never quite took to anything 100%. She had to be reminded to lower her fork after taking a bite of food. She had to be reminded that she needed to make it to the toilet before she couldn't hold it. Paige kept trying to get Baker to sit in Ellen's lap. He would let Paige pick him up, 
but he would wrestle free and disappear whenever he saw Ellen. One warm night, Paige sat next to her friend on the couch. They both watched the television, basking in its pale rays. Nothing on the screen could elicit a laugh or a cry or a twitch from Ellen. Not that night, not any night since she'd been home. Paige fiddled on her phone and imagined how crammed her physical mailbox must be. Okay, I'm going to make sure everything is in order at my house, then I'll come right back, okay? As usual, Ellen didn't answer. Her house was unchanged, timeless like a monument or a tomb. She sat down on her bed and suddenly felt how tired she was. A photo album lay on a small glass bedside table. It was full of photos of the adventures of Paige and Ellen, some recent, some distant. Her thoughts were interrupted by a knock at the front door. She stood to answer, but froze as soon as the knock came a second time. Only this time it was on the wall right next to the doorway to her bedroom. She was anchored to the spot for many long seconds. A slender arm, coated in grime and dirt, reached inside the doorway and knocked on the wall just above the light switch. Paige stared at it with clenched teeth. The shoulder that the arm was attached to came into view, revealing that the arm was attached to nothing at all. It floated limply in the doorway. It wore a ring, one of Ellen's. The hand flicked the light switch off. The floor opened up beneath Paige, and she fell with blinding speed into a void. The arm followed. Somehow, the arm was suddenly attached to Ellen as she lay on a raised stone platform bathed in a sickly green light. The light came from things resembling egg sacs the size of basketballs, only they were bioluminescent. They hung over Ellen from web-like strands. The platform was surrounded by things in robes. The robes seemed to float as if the wearers were underwater. Ellen's eyes darted from one form to another as they loomed over her. One of them casually reached out and touched her broken arm with hooked fingers. The limb was snapped off her body like a celery stalk. The shriek of pain was almost inhuman, though Ellen was the source. Blood spattered Paige's face. It was warm. Warm like the sunshine that was on her cheek. Paige's eyes shot open. She had fallen asleep and slept all through the night. She had completely left her friend alone. She didn't feel like this much of a failure since Ellen's funeral. 
She was out the door in an instant and sped over to Ellen's house, rehearsing her apology. All words fled her when she arrived. The flower beds and the grass and the trees, which had all been vibrant and lush the day before, were dead. Not just wilted, dead. The flowers were shriveled husks. The grass was gray as ash. Ellen! Ellen! Paige yelled as she ran inside the house. The door was ajar. Search as she may, Ellen was gone. Baker was curled up in the recliner where he would sit with his owner and watch TV. Something about the cat tugged at Paige's senses. She just had to get a closer look at him. His eyes were wide open, but all the color was drained from them. His body was perfectly still and cold. Ellen was paying for a ticket to the very theme park where her appetite for thrills began. The girl in the window avoided looking into those opaque eyes. They were cast high up towards the looping tracks of the roller coasters. In her line of sight, much closer, were power lines where half a dozen crows sat. Like static in a fading television signal, the sky became peppered with more crows. They circled high above, gradually lowering. The din of their voices was just barely getting through the haze of the park's sounds. Children pointed up. Adults squinted and shielded their eyes. Nobody was paying attention to Ellen, her blank eyes like granite carvings, a smile twisting her lips and the vortex of the crows narrowing above her. She breathed onto a clown that was in the middle of twisting a balloon into the shape of a dog. He had looked up to see what everyone else was gawking at. The air that came from her mouth was distorted like the air above a fire. He collapsed, several balloons flying off into the sky to be impaled by black beaks. A woman apparently part of a family of five, including three kids, heard the clown go down. She spotted Ellen just in time for her to breathe on her, and all five people wavered and fell. Five wisps of something evanescent, like vapor, snaked into Ellen's mouth. A middle-aged man heard the family hit the ground and he thought he was witnessing heat stroke. Then, he started to feel dizzy himself, and something also left his mouth and entered Ellen's. Confusion kindled in the crowd. People were falling with no apparent cause. The means of their death was invisible and silent. Whatever was causing the tide of death made people run, creating even more confusion, which created stampedes which were far noisier and more visible than Ellen, who crept along and exhaled death on everyone she could get close to. 
far too many people ran straight into her miasma of doom. The crows above her tightened into a black funnel, with the tip just above her head, and the more perceptive folks in the crowd could tell that whatever she was, she was best avoided. Kip Lancaster sat behind his usual wall of flat-screen monitors that had been jimmied into a security system. Each one had nine feeds running into them from all over the park, so the waves that Ellen was making didn't look like more than agitation in the crowds. It took a minute to get his attention. He first saw that people weren't just strolling around anymore. It looked like there was some sort of evacuation, but nobody knew where to go. Then he saw lots of people lying down in places they shouldn't be. The middle of roads where there should have been heavy foot traffic. Men, women, and children. Had there been a bomb or something? He scratched his beard with one thumbnail before grabbing the walkie. This is Kip. I think we got something really bad. Lots of people down on the ground and running around. Maybe an accident? Looks scary on the monitors. Voices chirped back that they'd check it out. By then, there were bodies strewn about in every imaginable way. Standing in line for funnel cakes. Whirling rides were full of screaming kids because the operators were slumped by the controls. Dead. Those still living were a tide of panic that knocked over vendor stands and trampled the slow and the weak. The handful of security guards dispatched to investigate couldn't safely get onto the fairgrounds. They could, however, see the cyclone of crows that was now a black pillar that terminated at some point among the chaos, like a great phantom finger saying, You are here. An older guard got on top of a vendor's trailer that hadn't been knocked over and looked out over the heads of panicking people. He looked through his binoculars at where the tornado of crows came to a point. Matthews to Kip, I don't know what I'm looking at, but there's a funnel cloud of crows out here and, uh, shit, this is weird. It's following a woman with glowing eyes? Kip found the feed that showed what Matthews was describing and zoomed in as much as he could. The image was grainy, but one thing was sure, crazy as it was. Anyone that came close to this woman fell over and didn't get back up. The camera picked out a clump of flowers in a planter in the woman's path. The blossoms winked out of existence as they shriveled up. Kip radioed out again. Looks like she might be using some kind of chemical agent. Everything around her just dies. Four officers in blue uniforms converged on Ellen. Their service pistols were drawn and they yelled something to her. Something else to each other. They all moved in very close. Kip shook his head. Tell those officers to keep their distance, for Christ's sake! Everyone that- One of them made a move to restrain Ellen, and this emboldened the other three to also close in. Her mouth opened wide. The video feed was scrambled for a second, 
and then four officers fell down and didn't get back up. Four trails of gray pixels snaked from each body into the woman's mouth. Kip swallowed hard at the sight. His eyes took it in, but his brain was trying to spit it out. Kip here. All four dispatched officers are down. Kip zoomed out and was startled to see the dozens, hundreds of bodies that had accumulated while he was zeroed in on this strange woman. Kip, to anyone still following the situation, please respond. There was no answer. Does anyone read me, damn it? Something caught Kip's eye on the video feed. He had seen countless vehicles streaming out of the parking lot. A civilian vehicle was heading in. It smashed through the park admission gates and slid to a sideways stop near Ground Zero. Another woman jumped out of it. Alan! Paige called at the top of her lungs as she stood only a few meters from her best friend who had a black cloud of carrion eaters twisting above her, shedding feathers like volcanic ash. The sound of their wings and their voices was deafening, and yet Ellen halted as if she could hear her name being called. She looked at Paige. Ellen, what is this? What the hell did you do? She raised her one arm to Paige and her mouth spoke. Paige heard a voice that may have come from her friend, or it may have come from the ground beneath her feet. She wasn't sure, but the sound made her tremble. Paige, baby, it's me, Daddy. It wasn't Ellen's voice. It was her father's. Male. Baritone. Full of the love that she hadn't heard in years. Daddy? She whimpered. Mommy, mommy, mommy! Ellen's mouth moved again, this time with a much higher voice. Mommy, I miss you! Paige reacted like she had been stabbed in the stomach. It was Bobby's voice. Sweet little Bobby. Her vision swam as her feet couldn't keep track of the ground. Oh, sugar, come to daddy. We can finally be together. Her father's voice again. Paige barely managed to focus her eyes to see Ellen coming toward her, with a royal vanguard of crows walking ahead of her. Take our hand, mommy. The sound of crows roared like ocean surf. Come on, Dumpling. Daddy has waited for this for so long. A sob racked Paige's abdomen and pulled her face taut like there was a bridle in her jaws. She held out her shaking arms toward Ellen, not in protest, but in invitation. Ellen opened her mouth wide and the air around her began to shimmer. Pink mist burst around her blonde hair, and a dark crimson spot bloomed on her forehead. She face-planted a few feet away from Paige, 
revealing Kip Lancaster holding a service pistol that had belonged to one of the fallen officers. With the crack of Ellen's skull against the ground, the cyclone of crows scattered. Paige registered no shock or dismay as the young security guard approached her and made sure she was all right. Police arrived. So did the coroner. He nearly joined the body count out of sheer shock. The scene was bathed in flashing LED lights for some time. The more officers questioned witnesses, the more insane the story sounded. One of them nervously stroked his mustache as he talked to his comrade, who held a clipboard. Nobody is going to believe any of this, Johnson. I swear, nobody. Hey, this is no time to be smoking. Johnson turned to the other cop and stared at him with his mirrored sunglasses. Officer Mustache nodded. Sorry, I could have sworn I saw smoke coming out your pie hole. I mean, you passed your personal record of three months without a cig, so yeah, just trying to help. The computer from inside the squad car beeped to life and the mustachioed officer ducked in to check it out. Johnson quietly adjusted his sunglasses, briefly revealing his eyes, which were white as marbles. I hope you enjoyed the Chilling Tales exclusive original tale, Rest in Peace, Ellen, as written by Craig Groshek and Irving Crane. Thank you for joining us for tonight's program. As a reminder, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs>
and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>